1: I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, master's in gerontology, and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Also on the board of the National Council on Aging, you stay pretty busy.
2: I do, and i just like to give a shout-out to the University of the Incarnate Word. They were kind enough to select me as a distinguished alumna. This past year, and I I came back from the graduation ceremony from last weekend, and everyone was lovely, the president of the university and the alumni folks, and and I got to sit on stage and look at the 1,300 graduates as they walked across the stage, but you know what, up close where you can... Almost you can see in their eyes, are they are they happy? Are they scared spitless? Everybody's watching them walk across the stage. What kind of shoes were they wearing? Um, so that was a lot of fun to experience, you know, those kind of happy moments. And, and they actually, one of the graduates, her husband had been deployed for 13 months, and she did not know it. No one knew it. He, when she walked across to get her diploma, was at the end of the stage to hand her flowers and just surprised her. And the whole place broke down in tears. But congratulations, all the graduates, but University Incarnate Award, thank you so much. It was a lovely honor.
1: Well, you didn't share that with us.
2: I'm sharing it now.
1: Distinguished alumna.
2: Yes, it it was lovely. Cool. Lovely.
1: There was a neat little YouTube video I saw the other day of a little boy. Mommy gave him a big package and asked him to unwrap it. His dad was in it. He'd been deployed.
2: Oh, it's cool. Yeah, that's yeah, lovely. It was yeah. pretty neat. Well, and, and they invited the family to join dad and you know in a section there at the big coliseum where the graduation was held, and you saw all these kids all of a sudden come running down the stands to see dad. Wow! So I fun. love it. Yeah, it was fun.
1: Well, up next after we talk a bit about stuff, Dr. Melanie Merriman will be joining us, and she is the author of a really neat book, Holding the Net. Caring for My Mother and the tight rope of Aging, which is available everywhere. And we talked to her about how she became a caregiver, not expecting it, and how she handled it. And she talks about the ups and downs.
2: Right. And she that book was actually, um, I saw it on bestreads.com. So you know, yeah. not plugging the website, but they thought it was a good book.
1: Well, she's also the winner of the Best Book Award for Autobiography and Memoir from BookFest's 2017 Best Book Award. So there you go. That's pretty cool. That's
2: how she got to be on the show. Now,
1: before we get to her, talk to me a bit about medical marijuana, which is becoming more and more in the news.
2: Well, we are hearing a lot more about medical marijuana, and I can count more people I know personally who are now prescribed medical marijuana because I fall into that age group of 50 to 64-year-olds who are much more likely to use it. And I think, you know, as caregivers, there was an article not long ago in the New York Times that where I was looking at this increase in medical marijuana, where the gentleman you know and has he was taking care of his wife who had Alzheimer's, and he gave her a hit every day, and he took a hit every day or actually sort of morning, noon, and night, you know, once in the morning, once in the middle of the day, and once at night. And he said that's got them both through, calmed her down, calmed him down, life was much better.
1: Ate a lot of chocolate chip
2: cookies. Probably so. Um, but, you know, the interesting art, uh, news, and in, this is our friend Paul Span that was writing about it in the New York Times, is that is becoming very, very common, so common that in one community in California, there are so many people in the neighborhood that use the local dispensary that they send a bus. To go pick them up, to bring them to their store so they can get their refill. How thoughtful! Which you know, it took a lot longer for the prescription drugs in the grocery stores to go do stuff like that. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Although you can now, from HEB and I, I suspect other pharmacies, get your prescriptions delivered.
2: Yes, yes, you can. So you know the what people, the caregivers need to understand about medical marijuana is there. It's only legal in 33 states. It's not everywhere. It's still not legal in federal law um, in most. Well, I can't say in most countries. It's only the federal law. So there's a little bit of a disconnect. But they're not enforcing it at the moment. But they're not enforcing it. But there's also very little research because it has been an illegal substance for so long. And research was not allowed to be done with marijuana. It was classified with the same as heroin. Um, is that we don't know where is it the most effective, right? So we don't know what kind of pain it treats the best. We don't know if it helps us sleep better. The jury's out on that. We don't know what the dosage is. Is it, you know, how often do you need to take it? Uh, And we don't know a lot about, you know, there are quite a few brands and types of marijuana. And it comes in, as you mentioned, cookies, brownies, vape it, do all kinds of oil, salve. Um, You can rub it on your skin. So it comes in a lot of different forms. And so we just don't know that much about it. And in the medical world, there's um, some skepticism, I think. Uh, for the the growth of it. And, it, and dizziness is a real problem, right? So the big, big things, side effects, are dizziness uh, that can lead to falls, which are very bad, right, right. and then an increased risk of motor vehicle accidents. I believe that's the same risk for people of any age, uh, in particular with marijuana use. Uh, and huh. so we don't want to know what happens long term.
1: And there haven't been many double-blind studies.
2: No, no, no. Um, But it's interesting. We do know that it is helpful, um, you know, for people. Anecdotally. And, well, you know, even through the research, I mean, the the place, the reasons that it became legal, um, there were uh, folks that had. um, I think epilepsy. Yeah, epilepsy. Thank you. You could see that. I was you were having, reaching I was for epilepsy. Reaching for epilepsy, that it does, it did decrease the number of seizures. There is some research around Parkinson's tremors uh, that reducing that. And so uh, there are also some pain studies related to it. But the jury's still out. Um, you want to proceed with, with caution. Right. And I know everybody's just enjoying their medical marijuana. Uh, but uh, if you, it is for medicinal purposes. <laughs>
1: Try not to buy it on a street corner.
2: Try not to.
1: She's Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Air, and you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The answer, if you had a choice of an animal that you could be, what would you think about being a giant tortoise?
2: Well, you know, if you've seen any of the the movies with Finding Nemo, you know that giant tortoises are really cool. And And in real life, the Galapagos Islands tortoises. But you probably didn't know, as I did not know, that they helped launch the theory of evolution. So what's cool about giant tortoises is they live to be like 125 years old. And there are stories of some living to be 250. How? We would never know this. I mean... We had, none of us live long enough count to count the rings on to the be shell. able to count the the rings on the turtle. But when Darwin, it was Charles Darwin visiting the the, the tortoises and noticing how they had adapted to their advi- environment um, that made him you know kind of come up with his theory. So. Before some of the the last Galapagos turtle died um, recently, luckily they had mapped all of his genes. His entire genome had been mapped, and they're looking at it. So there's a lot of different things that we might learn about people. This is something I also don't think about often is that reptiles are the closest in, you know, biology to humans. Really? So we don't think about that a lot we study, we hear about mice and somehow we think they're a mammal, I'm a mammal. must be true um but there are many lessons and, and and we our closest relatives um are 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 the lizards and reptiles you know they can regenerate entire body parts um which we would love to be able to do that. maybe we can clone some of our own. they um have an immune system defense. Where we have, like, let's say we have a system of one, one good system of, of, you know, fighting disease. They have 12. Wow. So, and they don't get cancer, which is another reason they live to be 125. So they have tumor suppression, immune defense, DNA repair, energy regulation, now let's think about that space force in deep space. They can also, a lot of reptiles, you know, they can shut down their biological function to just the bare minimum, like hibernating, so that they don't expend any energy. So, so we could Mars do space and, travel. Yeah. yeah, the tortoises are going to Mars ahead of us. Wow. I hope they find the water by the time they get there.
1: Have to ship it with them.
2: I guess so. So they're studying it, and it and it's kind of interesting to think about what we can learn from the animal kingdom um, that might take us into the future, like space travel, from learning uh, from the giant tortoises. It's
1: one of the things I love about the National Geographic Channel.
2: I know everything is fascinating. Everything. I, you know, I wouldn't. You wouldn't think about giant tortoises if you didn't watch the National Geographic exactly. Channel. That but naked mole rats. It's, it's it's yeah. It's naked mole rats. Absolutely, everything is fascinating on National Geographic. Wow.
1: Now, here's something that every single human being, at least in this country, thinks about this time of year. Diet and weight loss. Diet and weight loss. And come January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, or 4th, TV's filled with Lose Weight Now.
2: I know. Oh, my gosh. You're just overwhelmed with it. So here's the good news. The New York Times has put together The Skinny on Diet and Weight Loss. And I'm going to share it with Balloon. you. baboom boom yeah. I'm going to share that with you right now. So people vary in the way they respond to dieting. We, know, we all know 20 people who have tried dieting, and, they, and the results have been varied. Right. Right? Um, there is nothing new in the diet universe. They just keep relabeling it. So all the different diets, I don't know what the latest fad is right this There's second. There's going to be one. But there is one. It's on the TV right now. They're selling it to you. It's not new. Nothing new. Um, diet studies are insanely difficult. So, among doctors, low carb, high carb, you know, high protein, low fat, no, low fat, fat, no fat, fat, blah, blah, they do not agree. Doctors don't agree on this. So, know that um, dieting for better health is not the same thing as dieting to lose weight. Oh. Those are different diets. If you are diabetic and you are controlling your diet because of your diabetes, that is different than if you are obese and you are trying to lose weight. So think about that as you're selecting your diet. Um, And, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, we don't don't understand everything that makes us gain weight. We don't understand everything over the last century that has changed caused all of this obesity right so we do have bigger portions we do eat more sugar people go ah oh, it's the sugar but then other people are saying no it's the processed grains we're not eating real food anymore it's like we were talking about deli meats you know um it's the processing so the more natural foods uh and so it, we could call it maybe pe- everybody quits smoking so now they're fat they used to smoke the whole first half of the century or maybe the last hundred years. I was one of them. Uh, and people gain weight when they give up smoking. So I'm, I'm here to reassure you that we just don't know and you can continue to be confused. Dr. It's Robin what everybody Eickhoff, is. Who uh,
1: <laughs> used to co-host Walmart Radio with me and you know Dr. Aikoff.: Yes. Uh, when she goes out to dinner, she orders a to-go box with her meal. Meal comes, she cuts it in half, puts half in the to-go box.
2: Well, see, and I do it the opposite way. I plan to eat half the meal, and right. I will select half and enjoy it and then get the to-go box because I would feel cheated if I got the to-go box Interesting. first because I don't know. My mood might change. I might want to eat more of the scalloped potatoes right now and save the cranberries for later.
1: Ooh, cranberries out of a can?
2: Uh, of course not out of a can. Yeah, I, actually, I like the cranberries in the can.
1: Yeah, I do too. Wow. Carol Zonial, thank you. Up next. Dr. Melanie Merriman talking about caregiving for her mom and how that worked out right here on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zernial on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
3: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer Well, we looking forward to speaking with our next guest, uh, not only because she knows a heck of a lot about caregiving and dealing with the issues of being a caregiver, but she wrote a really cool-sounding book on Hawaii, the chef, the farmers, the food, the islands, and we'll find out about that as well. Melanie Merriman, Dr. Melanie Merriman, a Ph.D., joins us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernil, and Melanie, thanks for coming on board.
4: Well, thanks so much for inviting me to talk about this important topic.
1: And the title of your book really says it all, Holding the Net, Caring for My Mother on the Tightrope of Aging. Talk to us about that.
4: Well, I uh, I wrote this book primarily because when I was sort of finished with my caregiving after my mother had died, I looked around and saw that there were so many people who were not only dealing with caregiving, but facing the same kinds of frustration and fears um, and challenges that I was facing in caring for my own mother. So I decided to tell my story, and my idea was that both my successes and my failures would be instructive for people, and that's turned out to be the case.
1: And when you became a caregiver, how did that happen?
4: Well, uh, basically, my mother got older. Uh, What a surprise, right? Um, It's actually one one of the messages that I bring that sounds so obvious that aging is one of these things that only goes in one direction. Uh, But we tend to forget that. We don't pay attention to it until it's really too late. So my mother was very healthy, very active, very independent, and able to live very well on her own until she was close to 80, um, uh, actually into her 80s. Um, And so it wasn't until she was 87, 88, we started to see a little bit of a change. And really, it was when her friends talked to both my sister and myself and said, you know, we think your mom needs to live closer to one of the two of you. And it still took quite a while for us to really see the changes in her. So how did we become a caregiver? It was kind of by surprise and somewhat reluctantly. Um, But we began to see that my mother was on what I have come to call the tightrope of aging, this period when some of the things that used to be very simple for her to do, bathing, dressing, making a meal, had become really precarious for her to do. And every day was really uh, a little bit like walking on a tightrope.
2: Well, you know, you caught me when you said the word that you kind of wrote about your successes and your failures, and there are a lot of people who would rather say, you know, I did this right, I was a great caregiver, and just talk about all the things that they did. Um, so I'm interested, You know, could you give an example um, of, of, of a failure, and why is it you want to talk about the failures?
4: Well... I think one of the reasons that I really want to talk about them is because I came to caregiving thinking that I had a I had great background for doing it. I had been working in the field of hospice care for many years. Um, I knew a lot about aging, I knew about illness. Uh, I knew about our healthcare system. system, um, and even I was really humbled by the experience. And so one of my messages is nobody knows how to do this right. You learn by doing it, but we need to share our experiences as well. I think one of my major failures was that I didn't utilize the professionals that were available to me as much as I should have. Um, It was almost by accident that um, I ended up having a conversation with my mother and her physician, the three of us, about giving up driving, for example. It had not occurred to me to actually... Um, solicit his advice on that. But it came up while we were uh, on a regular visit uh, to him. And he was so helpful in explaining to her things like the way that her reflexes were not what they used to be, and really giving her um, statistics about older people who are driving and getting into accidents and hurting other people, which is something she really didn't want to have happen, and by the end of that visit, she was ready to give up her car. It was her choice to give up the car. This is one of the things that I think families struggle with, and others, other things they struggle with, like helping parents to understand that they really do need to move out of their homes, or that they need to modify their homes. These are times when having an outside professional who can be the bad guy and let you be the caring son or daughter um, or friend um, can really, really be helpful. And I always recommend to people that they think about using what used to be called a geriatric care manager and now they're called aging life care experts. And you can go online and just Google aging life care expert and find one in your community. Um, And they can be so helpful in really facilitating those difficult conversations.
1: Now, hold that thought. We're talking with Dr. Melanie Merriman. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And you said something about not reaching out to and getting the help you needed early on. Uh, we've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews with caregivers like yourself and almost all say the exact same thing. I wish I'd only known.
4: <laughs> well, that, that takes me back to what I said earlier about it, it sounds like such a, such a ridiculous message, but the message when I'm out speaking around the country about this topic is here's what you have to remember. Aging only goes in one direction. (laughs) So, you know, we're all going to get older. Your parents are going to get older. And you need to start talking well before people are really declining, either physically or mentally, about what are you going to do if such and such happens. And it's just so much easier to have the conversation if you use that if instead of a when because nobody really wants to think about it actually happening to them, but you can use the if. You can use sort of scenario planning, uh, you know, what if it turned out that you couldn't go up and down the stairs anymore? What, what should we plan now so that you can still live the life that you want to live even if you can't go up and down the stairs or even if you can't drive your car? Because it turns out there are lots and lots of options. There are ways you can modify your home, there are car services, there are senior transportation services, but you need to be prepared And lined up with those kinds of things ahead of time.
3: Well, what I
2: like about what you're saying is that it changes um, the conversation from a big, heavy conversation where we're going to sit down and go through everything and plan for the future, to if you just took those questions you ask, you know, and sprinkled them in conversations across a period of time, you know, where you notice like, oh, I live in a You know, my house doesn't have any bedrooms on the first floor. You know, neither your house nor my house. We don't have bedrooms on the first floor. What are we going to do, you know, when we can't go up and down the stairs? And, you know, and then maybe the next time, I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't drive. If you couldn't drive, Mom, what would you do? you know and mm-hmm. and kind of sprinkle those conversations get some answers maybe throughout that you'll get some gears turning in your family and you will certainly learn some of their preferences little gems that I would much rather learn in a non-emergency situation uh, where I can call that information back up. I've already asked that question. But I think it's a great approach to really some basic questions. And think of it not as one giant conversation, but over a period of time, getting gleaning that information.
1: Now, Melanie, you mentioned that uh, your mother's friend said that she really needed to be living closer to you uh, and or your sister. What's the geography? Where was she? Where were you?
4: My mother was living on the west coast of Florida, uh, just north of Tampa, Uh, I was living in Miami, Florida, and my sister at that time was living in Washington, D.C., but on her way to moving to um, a coastal town in North Carolina. And as it happened, uh, my mother ended up moving to the North Carolina location.
1: And that was something you all negotiated?
4: Yes, it, it was. It actually was really interesting. My, my mother and I had been very, very close um, since I was young. My sister and my mom, uh, not so much. Um, and so it was kind of a surprise to both my sister and me when my mother said, well, if I ever had to move, I would move near Barbara. That's my sister in North Carolina. I don't really know why she made that decision, but going back to what Carol just said, those are the kinds of things that you can have conversations about very far in advance. Gee, what if you were ever going to move to live near one of the kids? Which one? You know, what, what location do you think suits you better? I think part of the reason my mother chose North Carolina is that it was just a smaller town and more comfortable for her. I think Miami was frightening. You know, it was a big city, and she just couldn't imagine herself living there, even though it was close to me. Um, and I think, in another way, she saw it as an opportunity to get closer to my sister as well.
1: Or maybe she always liked your sister better, but you didn't know.
4: <laughs> maybe that's true.
1: No, I don't think
4: so.
2: <laughs> well, that's another thing I don't want to think
4: about.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: Well, you know, the other point that you know I think that you make um, is it doesn't really matter what kind of expertise. That we we have um, our good friend, Dr. Jamie Heisman, you know, talks about how, you know, the whole family, they become Larry, Moe, and Curly, the three stooges. You know, they're all f- licensed therapists. But when, you know, somebody gets sick or there's a caregiving situation, you know, everything goes out the window. And they're trying to piece together some sort of answer uh, to the question and, and bumping into each other. So um, asking for help, finding out where the help is. Getting the help early uh, is so important to not uh, to kind of doing the the long run, and caregiving is definitely a marathon. Now we're
1: going to come right back to you and talk to us a little bit about long distance caregiving, which you were then involved in with your mom in North Carolina and you in Miami. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at nine thirty a.m. The answer with our very special guest, Dr. Melanie Merriman. <music> But we're having the very best conversation with Dr. Melanie Merriman. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. And Dr. Merriman is uh, the winner of the 2017 BookFest Best Book Award for Autobiography and Memoir. Her articles and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, ThirdAge.com, and one of our very favorite sites, NextAvenue.org. And as I'd mentioned at the very top of the show, Uh, You're the co-author of Merriman's Hawaii, The Chef, The Farmers, The Food, The Islands, a cookbook with stories about your brother-in-law, Chef Peter Merriman, and you got to sample some incredible food, right?
4: Yes, indeed. (laughs) So
1: tell us about long-distance caregiving. When when we were chatting a moment ago, uh, your mother made the choice of moving to North Carolina, living. uh, did she move in with your sister Barbara or just live near her?
4: No, my mother was fiercely independent, had always said she would never live with either one of us, and we were fortunate that she was able financially um, to have an an apartment in an independent living community. So she was in an adult congregate living facility with her own apartment, but it was just five minutes away from my sister's house.
1: And how did you deal with then the the long-distance caregiving?
4: Well, honestly, you know, I don't know. I, I know it's hard. it was hard for my sister to be there every single day and be the one who was answering the phone, you know, at least once a day for some need or another. But I think it is also difficult for the caregiver who is at a distance because you just never really know what's going on. And so for me, it was just always in the back of my mind. Every time the phone rang, I was worried that it was some sort of a crisis, et cetera. And one of the things that I tried very hard to do, first of all, was to stay in touch with my sister and make sure that she felt supported. Of course, I stayed in touch with my mother as well, but I really wanted to make sure that my sister felt supported as a caregiver. Um, I encouraged her to go on vacation and, you know, cleared my schedule so that I could go and be, in, lo- in that location. I just stayed in my sister's house whenever she went away, so she always felt she had the support. And I also tried hard not to be that that family member from out of town who sort of swoops in and upsets the apple cart in terms of everything that the, the local caregiver has in place. I, I was very deferential to any um, arrangements that my sister had set up, knowing that she had all my mother's best interests at heart, and that she really knew the day-to-day situation. So I think it's, it's hard to be the one at a distance because you you want to be more involved than you are, and you need to really realize that you are at a distance and let those who are on site take the lead.
1: It's well, interesting. My brother was a caregiver for my mom and dad. I was in San Antonio. He was in Cleveland. And I remember one day just calling and and saying, uh, you know, I was thinking about whatever it was, and have you thought about trying X? And his response was, I'll get a plane ticket, they'll be on the next flight to San Antonio, and you can take over. (laughs) That's the last time I ever offered a suggestion.
2: Well, um, ta- wait, how was the adjustment period for your mother? She's fiercely independent, as you have described her. She moves to a new town into independent living, but how big of an adjustment was that for her? And you know, did she make friends? Uh, how'd the move go?
4: You know, the, the 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 adjustment period was incredibly short. Within a month, she was saying that she wished that she had moved sooner. Wow. But I will tell you that the six months leading up to that were torturous. I thought they would kill both of us. (laughs) So, again, part of the problem was we waited too long to really push the decision and to actually make the move. By the time we were making the move, she had already declined to a point where any kind of a change was so frightening for her. And so she was very anxious for the entire time leading up to it and for for about four months, I was visiting almost every week um, and I had the ability to do that because of I was working as an independent consultant, and I just lived right across the state um, but she just needed a lot of support to even get through the whole period of time during which we you know, were on the waiting list and then figuring out which apartment she would have and setting up the move and all those kinds of things. But once she got there, she settled in very, very quickly. I think a lot of it was she had been getting really isolated in her own condo, and that's what happens is older people will cling to the familiar, the home that they've lived in for so long, but now they're almost like prisoners there when they really can't drive as well or, or as far, friends don't visit as often because a lot of their friends have now gone to live near their children. So it, 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 they really have lost a lot of the social interaction. And when she moved into the adult congregate living facility, she had dinner every night with a whole group of people. She started to make friends. She was on the bus every day going out to some sort of an event, and she really loved it.
2: Well, that's great. I think that's, it's good for people to hear because I'm sure there are a number of caregivers listening right now, and they're in that six-month period, you know, at the mm-hmm. end of their rope trying to figure out what is going to happen. We know a move needs to happen, um, but what if she doesn't like it, Right, uh, and which can and be paralyzing. Putting
4: Everybody's putting it off because of that. And the fact is putting it off is exactly what's going to cause the problem. If you can make the move sooner when people are more active and can make friends and can do more of the activities, they get into the swing of it and and really establish a whole new rhythm.
2: Well, and you mentioned that there was a waiting list, and so I have known people that that's one of the mechanisms they use is let's go around and visit some places you might potentially live. You, you know, you, you have, yours was in a different town, wherever that is. You know, we flew to New Mexico to visit places with my 97-year-old aunt that she decided she wanted to move. Um, and then she, of course, <laughs> picked some place we didn't pick. Uh, but that's okay. But the, but just the the the, mo- the visiting different places, finding out who had a wait list, and then, you know, there are people who – their name has come up on the waitlist, and and they're not ready to move yet. They're still in that discussion, uh, and depending on how long it takes to come around again. But then you build some trust. Okay, the waitlist has come. You're not ready. Um, maybe we'll 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 see when the next apartment becomes available. Maybe it's only a couple of months. And that that kind of um, an experience of picking a place, uh, getting your name on a waitlist if there is one. Uh, or when your name does come up, there's the impetus that you need. Okay, the wait list, you've cleared, let's go before we get shut out again. Now, how did your sister, yep. uh, how
1: did Barbara deal with all this? Uh, because it certainly changed her life as well.
2: Well,
4: my sister was a real hero. She just stepped up, did what needed to be done. She, um, she absolutely became a consummate caregiver. And I think, you know, the point is none of us ever thought it would be her. And so while I had thought about it to some extent, I don't think she had ever even thought about it. But she is a very methodical person, and um, she basically just looked at it like this was her new job. And she really, like I say, she, she was consummate. She did such an excellent job taking care of my mother. And in the end, I think it was a good thing because, as I mentioned, my sister and, or my mother and I had always had a great relationship, but my mother and sister had not. And I think one of the things that my mother saved my sister from were any kind of regrets about that relationship. Because at the end of her life, my sister was the one who was really there caring for her. And so my sister always knows that she was able to express her love in that way and that my mother knew it.
2: And, Which, that's, and that's what, um, as the, commercial, the credit card commercial would say, priceless. Yes, well, it is. So um, when you were putting together the book and you are reflecting back on, um, you know, caring for your mother, holding the net, caring for my mother on the tightrope of aging, did, when you reflected, were there any surprises? Were there things that you saw from looking back that you didn't see when you were in the thick of things?
4: Oh, I think there were probably a lot of things. Um, one of the things that um, I didn 't see as clearly when we were in the thick of it was the difference between my sister and myself and how how she approached things from a very clear headed and practical perspective and I approached everything from a very emotional perspective so here I was the one who, technically who had the experience in this world. Um, but my sister somehow had a little bit more distance and, um, and really was able to come at things um, in a very effective way. And for me, a lot of times the emotion got in the way.
1: How did you get into the hospice field?
4: Well, that's a really long story, but, but the short version is that um, I am trained as a research biologist, and I was working as a research biologist at the University of Miami School of Medicine. And I was beginning to think that I wanted to do something that was a little bit closer to the delivery of healthcare. I was basically doing cancer research and writing articles, and I thought, I kind of want to get a little closer to the delivery of healthcare. I didn't know how to do it. But I had an opportunity through the University of Miami to get an MBA in healthcare care administration. Mm. And so I did that, and it was in the course of that study that I learned about hospice care. And I felt that it was a really good model for the way that all of healthcare care should be, very holistic, very much focused on patients' values and preferences. And so I, I made it my my mission to go and work in the hospice field for a while, thinking I would eventually make my way back to mainstream health care. I never made my way back because I just fell in love with hospice and palliative care.
2: Which is a wonderful field. I think I think that there are many people that would believe if they could integrate the philosophy of hospice and palliative care way earlier just throughout medicine and yeah, the mainstream a, medicine. We would have a better system.
4: Yes. I, I would agree with that.
2: And
1: then you began to write.
4: And then I began to write, exactly. (laughs) Well, I had been doing a lot of business writing for many years, and interestingly, it was while I was doing my MBA and writing papers that I really discovered that I was very interested in writing creative nonfiction. Um, And it wasn't until really after my mother died that I eventually took a creative writing course, Um, And by that time, I really had decided that that this was a topic I really wanted to write about. As I said, once I was sort of finished, I, I looked around and saw so many people who were struggling in really so many of the same ways that I was struggling. And I thought, if nothing else, let me write my own story in order to stimulate discussion. We need to be talking to each other about this. Um, sharing our experiences. If for no other reason than we all need to feel a little bit less alone in, in doing this, but I also think that there's a lot of wisdom that wasn't being shared. And it's one of the things I like best about going around the country and speaking about this is that we get these conversations going, and it's astonishing the way that people can help each other just by telling their stories.
2: Well, and we often talk about caregivers are the real experts And so somebody who has already walked walked that mile uh, and given respect to the family caregiver um, to get that, glean that expertise, that special powder that really does clear up the skin, um, that trick for getting mom to go to adult daycare, uh, those kinds of things can be very helpful.
1: So, Melanie, we are flat out of time. How do people get a hold of your book?
2: My book is available anywhere books are sold.
4: I always encourage people to go to their um, local independent bookstore. Um, They can order it for you. Um, It is also available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Essentially, anywhere books are sold, you can get hold of my book.
1: Melanie Merriman, author of Holding the Net, Caring for My Mother on the Tightrope of Aging. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks again for inviting me.
1: Oh, sure. And I hope we talk again soon. Take care.
4: Thank you. Okay.
1: Bye. Bye-bye. bye Melanie Merriman. And uh, we turn next to Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernial. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
3: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
3: Well... I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
1: Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The answer, be there. Well, we're delighted you're here for the end of Caregiver SOS On Air because we cap each show with Take 10 where Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on addictions and caregiving, joins us on the Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Carol Zerniel is here, our co-host, and I'm Ron Aaron. you got a great idea for a topic.
2: Well, yeah, I was looking in my bookshelf recently, and I noticed a, a book that I had that talked about dealing with problem behaviors, and it literally you know, had a list of the different kinds of things that we as caregivers might consider a problem behavior and talk about a few different ways we might get a different you know, result or get over the hill in terms of the behavior. So, um, so Jamie, I'm sure that you are aware of some caregiver care recipients working together and they hit a bump in the road, such as someone with Alzheimer's saying, I want to go home, you know, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home. Um, I can think of a time when I worked in an adult daycare facility. We had a gentleman that did, you know, said it fifty times in a row. I want to go home. I want to go home. And he meant his
1: childhood home.
2: And and he meant his childhood home. But you know, you have to. We had to figure that out. So, what do you do when you're faced with somebody who's got this kind of repetitive behavior that the answer is somewhat elusive?
5: That's a great question, Carol. And uh, I would say that. First things we have to look at this particular person through the prism or the eyes, if you will, of the of three legged stool medical, psychological, and social. So, the first question I always get to when I'm working with somebody or a caregiver is Is it a medical issue that this particular person's obsessing? Uh, anxiety, depression, you know, guilt. What is going on from a medical side? Because once you get somebody to their primary care physician or the neurologist, you may find out that the medication issue or medications can be adjusted, or something's contraindicated. So that, that's the first order of concern is, is actually look at the medical situation.
2: And, but, I think that yeah, that's that's a great um, suggestion because we're hearing I want to go home, and we're not thinking that there may be an underlying medical cause necessarily for the you know the reason this person is agitated.
5: Absolutely. And we know that the agitation, dementia, is a disease that affects the brain, and the, and the brain controls our behavior. So, well, in a, 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 a good example, and memory is going to be affected.
2: Right. And, and I'm just, you're helping me realize a good example is that it's my own mother um, had some, you know, behaviors. And what we realized was that she had sciatica. When she could communicate with us, she would say, I'm having a bad day. You know, I've got a lot of pain in my lower back, my leg. Um, but actually, she had Alzheimer's, she couldn't communicate that. And so that sciatica, you know, was expressed in some really strange, angry behaviors because she just needed an aspirin. How did you figure that wow. out? Uh, you took some sleuthing. I mean, it wasn't something that was obvious. So that was something where the behavior was one thing, but the answer was really a medical issue that she was not able to communicate.
5: Wow, that is fabulous, the way your family pulls together and and actually looks at this and helps the listening audience with your personal examples. Um, I I so think that that's that's spot on. In fact, what that does, it triggers me in my mind to say that you must be a, how do I say, I know we're all sort of dysfunctional families. I certainly come from one. But yours coming together around your mom seems to be that you, you found your, as best you could, your two legs, your equilibrium. Because... As we deal with disruptive behaviors or difficult behaviors or obsessive behaviors or you know, what, inappropriate behaviors, whatever behavior it is, we have to be on two feet. I mean, the, the medical response, and I'll get to the psychological and social, but the medical uh, response, nothing can happen unless we ourselves are okay and taking care of ourselves and not able to take this personally. Meaning we can separate, let's say, your mom and the Alzheimer's from each other, that beautiful person who I met and knew and know and, and, and loved, obviously, with you until she passed, she also had Alzheimer's. And you, people have to really understand which is talking to me. And it's not that beautiful mom that, that was always there for you. It's disease speaking. But to understand that and those disruptive behaviors, we really have to be taking care of our own selves and not jump into that trap and bite the bait.
1: Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on caregiver SOS on air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman, and Carol Zerniel is here as well, our co-host. And, Dr. Jamie, uh, are are there similar patterns of disruptive behaviors from family to family to family? They fall into the categories of repetitive questions or I want to go home or wandering.
5: Yes, most definitely. I mean, I'm sure many people, uh, especially caregiver SOS, see that there are hoarders. There's hoarding, right? right and um he with, with with swearing i mean there's a repetition around that there's pacing people just just walking up and down and there's also the physical aggression and verbal aggression all these are signals that we need to look at this three-legged stool and the first leg of this is the medical and and that is critical the psychological is also critical the caree may not feel safe uh, first things again on the psychological side Hate to keep coming back to it, but it's going to be the same deal. We have to be taking care of ourselves. Nobody who has Alzheimer's or dementia wants to be with a caregiver that is fearful, anxiety driven, uh, you know, and dealing with a huge amount of stress and is on one leg. They want to feel safe in the whole process.
2: Well, and so I it's think very important for the, yeah. the question we started with, I want to go home, often can be, I don't know where I am you know that that i'm not i i'm uncomfortable i don't know where i am i want to go home i don't recognize this place which is a feeling of being unsafe and that falls into the psychological area so you know recognizing the psychological piece the feeling of unsafe or scared um, and helping to reassure them. And that can be something, you know, very simple, uh, uh, an object, so I'm giving them something that they recognize that may, you know, that's where a pet, a stuffed animal, a doll, uh, something like that, when uh, that someone ha- with dementia might have, that might th- take their mind off of being in an unfamiliar place.
5: Absolutely. And the caregiver has to understand what we say often in our show here again and we become most controlling in our environment, like to your point, uh, Ron, the, the you know, repetitive behavior, when we're feeling out of control in our mind. And so if a person is increasing in these agitated, disruptive behaviors or, or these ongoing sort of somewhat pathological behaviors like hoarding, you know, we have to understand they're really out of control in their mind. And to to Carol's point, we really have to see what in the environment is creating this out-of-control behavior to allow them to feel safe.
2: Right. So that was medical and psychological. What was that other leg of the stool?
5: Social. And I think social is extremely important to bring up, especially if it's somebody who has agitated or disruptive behavior, because to me, again, we all say to our moms and dads or brothers and sisters, we're not going to put you in the skilled facility ever, right? That's the, the, the mantra. And then all of a sudden, we don't until we have to. I believe that we really need to look at skilled nursing and residential settings deeply around the social programming. How well is the social program? You know, how does it to keep persons safe? Can they cognitively meet it halfway in response? I'm just saying this to our listening audience, all who I know want to keep their loved one at home. But the social side, being home will create much more disruptive behavior if you don't have a good social program and don't have a good, you know, safe environment milieu that a person can live within. Now, what would be a good social program?
2: Well, I I can give you an example of a gentleman that I worked with in Florida on in the Alzheimer's program, um, and he was incredibly disruptive at home. This was a gentleman that when his wife went to the grocery store, she would go take a nap and he would take all the cans out of the cabinet and open all of them. I mean, hundreds of dollars of food that he would waste just opening cans so that she didn't feel like she could go to sleep or take a nap. Um, He would throw all their clothes into the river that ran behind their house. He'd just go in the closet, get their clothes, and chunk them into the river. You know, So he didn't have good structure in the home. It was just the two of them. So she put him in um, a, a day facility where it had a social program, he loved it. He thought he was back in the military. He had to get his uniform on. You put his Navy belt buckle on, and off he went to his program. He loved it.
5: I love that. That makes so, so much sense. And if you look at it from a parenting standpoint as opposed to our loved one, kids can't grow up unless they feel safe. They just don't mature emotionally or psychologically. In a traumatic environment, they can't. Why would that be any different? And what you just described, Carol, with his behavior and finding a milieu and a social program, if you will, on a daily basis, that allows him to feel much more safer so he doesn't have to act out. That's perfect. He doesn't have to communicate.
1: Got to to stop you right there. We're flat out of time. This has been fascinating, and uh, we ought to talk about this again down the road. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. You bet. You've been listening to Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer, Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we will catch you at 6 p.m. Sunday.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.